The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. This program will provide the groundwork you need to advance your awareness and be involved in the approaching transformation in consciousness. Now, your host, Peter Tung. Hello and welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation and I'm your host, Peter Tung. Thank you for joining us today. The intention in these episodes is to give you insights into how the planet is shifting in frequency and vibration to a new level of awareness and how you can be part of this grand awakening. Today, I'm delighted to welcome to the show Dr. Carmen Bolter. Carmen has recently produced a five-part DVD series called The Pyramid Code, which is currently showing on the documentary channel on national television. And she also recently appeared on Coast to Coast AM with uh, George Nury, and as a result of that, had tremendous uh, interest in uh, her work. So, Carmen, welcome to the show. Hi, Peter. So, tell me a little bit about how the Pyramid Code is being received on, on national television at the moment. Well, it's going to be airing in 24 countries in 14 languages over the next little while. We've just signed a deal with Japan and Germany, and more to follow. There's a Canadian deal on the table. And there's an awful lot going on with it, and lots of interest from my coast interviews, thousands of emails. Now you're on Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. You're really going up in the world. Yeah. <laughs> so, so just give our listeners a bit of an overview of the Pyramid Code. It's a wonderfully made five-part in-depth series of, of shows. So just give a quick overview to our listeners of, of what it's all about. Okay. Well, it starts with an episode called The Band of Peace which is the pyramid fields north and south of the Giza Plateau, which encompass 22 pyramids that are all aligned to stars. And it's showing how the uh, river used to run in front of the Sphinx and how that was the celestial Nile, the celestial Milky Way, and how the ancients had a sky-ground correlation. The second episode is called High-Level Technology, and that's looking at the evidence of machine tooling, super sophisticated uh, quartz crystal floors and laser-cut crystal altars, huge, huge uh, blocks of stone that are precise in a way that we have no way of doing now even. The third episode is called Sacred Cosmology, and we go on an expedition into the open desert to a site called Naphtaplia, which is a stone circle that dates back to the flood and is making the same alignments as you find on the Giza Plateau to Orion, Sirius, Polaris, the solstices and equinoxes, and it's very, very important in terms of tracing the history before the pharaohs. Episode four, my favorite, is the empowered human, and that's looking at how the ancients used to have 360 senses 
and the whole story of how spirituality used to exist instead of religion. And it traces the 18th dynasty and how there was a resurgence during the time of Hatshepsut and Nefertiti and Akhenaten in terms of how to be truly empowered and truly spiritual in a fully functioning 12-strand DNA human. And finally, the last episode, episode is a new chronology, which is giving us far-reaching back timelines that will allow us to position the time when the high-level technology was existent in the Golden Age, way, way, way back beyond um, what the traditional Egyptologists claim uh, that the pyramids were built in 2450 BC, which just doesn't add up. Well, that's a beautiful summary of, of the shows, and, and <laughs> there's so much content we want to try and get through today. Um, but one of the expressions that I, I found fascinating was uh, you talk about psychic archaeology. Just explain that to us. Well, at the University of Calgary, I teach quantitative research methods, and what you do is you come up with a hypothesis and then collect data to see if the data supports your hypothesis or not. Well, in, in, I think what's missing in archaeology is the idea of a hunch coming from past life recall or cellular memory. And so you can get a hunch and then go into the field and test it. And so a lot of the ways that I found what I was looking for in my field work in Egypt was by looking for it because I had a past life memory of it. And then, of course, I found the evidence of it and then went, aha, that's it. But for some of the things, I looked for 10 years and there were so many, nope, this isn't it, nope, this isn't it. And an overwhelming yes um, produced uh, a resonance that I had actually found what I was looking for. So you, you talk about past life connections, and you obviously felt a very strong connection to Egypt at some point. When did that begin for you? When I was six years old, I started having past life memories, and I could see the Egyptian headdresses and the, and the outfits that they were wearing, and I knew this was very strange indeed. I didn't know where it was from, and then I started reading books when I was eight years old, until I realized that it was all about ancient Egypt, the foot of the Sphinx, the Sphinx Temple. And uh, by the time I was um, 36, I had evidence of 85 past lives, and I've been going to, I've been to 51 countries looking for traces of evidence of, of these lives since then. So it started when I was a young child. Wow. So in many ways, you're, you're connect, not only connecting the dots of your, of your incarnational lineage, but you're actually... Each time you go to those places, you're bringing those pieces home to completeness for yourself. That's correct. What a wonderful uh, double-edged gift you're <laughs> providing for yourself and, and for, for us in the world. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you said that the pyramids were clearly doesn't add up that, that they were built in 2450 BC. So what conclusions have you come to about when they were built? Well, I mean, we're never going to be able to put an exact dot on the on the calendar about it, but um, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, I think that perhaps the last renovation was 2450 BC, but the the, the day that you uh, paint your house isn't the day that your house was built. And so we have to look at the processional cycle, which is a 26,000 year cycle. And um, there was a flood at the last golden age. It would have they would have to have been built in a golden age. And so every time we go around, it's like 26,000 more years added to um, the... It, it, I don't think it could have been built right around the flood. And so I'm John, John Anthony West in the Pyramid Code states at least 39,000 B.C., and there's new evidence now that could even make it go further back. 
So I don't want to say when, but I'd, I'd like to say at least a certain age. And it's a long, long time before our modern age and before the dynastic period in Egypt. And just explain why, why they would have to have been built in a golden age. Just explain what a golden age is actually. Well, um, Walter Cruttenden, in his book, Lost Star of Myth and Time, talks about the Earth being in a binary star system. And that checks out when you look in Starry Night Pro that we actually seem to be companion stars with the star Sirius. And they both work in um, ecliptical orbits. And when they're close together, um, they, we seem to have more energy, a more refined consciousness. And when they're far apart, they, they, the whole thing moves slower and we go down into a goal, uh, an Iron Age. Now, these are the Vedic cycles. There's a lot more talk about this now, uh, the processional procession of the equinoxes. And we are at the lowest level of consciousness possible in this cycle. And so we don't even have the technology to take the pyramids down. And because they're considered on Islamic, they would be taken down um, if it was possible for us to do that. So... In order to move 2.3 million stones that are up to 200 tons, we don't even have cranes that can do that now. And in order for the pyramids to be built in, in, in 20 years even, with 2.3 million stones, they'd have to be lifting and placing a stone a minute 24-7 for 20 years to get it there. So they had to have had a different type of technology altogether, and I think that there's evidence of anti-gravity and a number of other resonance fields that would have supported the energetics that would have allowed the architects and engineers, not slaves, to have built the pyramids. Wow. So the, the, the function that the pyramids performed then um, were probably not uh, to be tombs. Well, pretty much everybody in the pyramid code says they couldn't have been tombs. Um, of the 67 pyramids in Egypt, they've never ever found a mummy in a pyramid. Now, flat-topped pyramid, well, they call them pyramids, but a flat-topped structure with steps is considered a mastaba, and those are tombs. But the straight-sided pyramids are more energy devices. And so over time, over the millennia, I think they had different functions. Um, they definitely generate energy, and they were used to help initiates um, in consciousness raising, and there were many different functions just as there's many different interpretations to hieroglyphic. It's not just a language, a verbal language. And when you say uh, uh, energy generators, uh, in what form would that, would that energy be created? Well, the Pyramid Code has a lot of animations that show how the whole thing would have worked in unison. So we can't just take one pyramid in isolation and what is not widely known is that under the whole entirety of the pyramid fields, north and south, for an expanse of 15 miles, is a honeycomb network of granite passageways and limestone aquifers, and there is evidence of the old riverbed running to the east of the temples, which are to the east of each pyramid, um, and the Nile would have flooded and filled up these water passageways, which is, would have gone through the zigzag passageways. And Emoto talks about this pouring water from one thing to the other, but there's also radon gas in granite, which is slightly radioactive, and there's crystalline matrix, and we run everything now with crystals. And so there would have been a tremendous charge building in the water molecule that then would have been directed to underneath the pyramids 
And Chris Dunn talks about capacitors inside the Grand Gallery, which would have been able to blow the water molecule apart, and they would have been able to harness the hydrogen energy, which is an implosive energy instead of the static electricity that we have now. That is, it it kind of pollutes. And so um, there would have been the actual energy power plant function, but also because of the location and the resonance fields and everything working together, um, it could have been um, a resonance field that actually was connected to the telluric um, currents on the planet, ley lines or dragon lines as they're known in Chinese tradition. That's a fascinating and long answer which I need to take in. And we're coming up to our first break, so we'll continue this uh, wonderful discussion with Carmen Bolter after the break. This is Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. Extraordinary. Seventh Wave Network. How do we walk our true spiritual path at a time when the Western world is fixated on material gain? More people are now recognizing the emptiness which comes with this limited approach to life. There is another way. Four years ago, Peter Tung left his position as a high school principal with 30 years experience in the education system and turned to his true calling of a metaphysical life. He now uses his experience and wisdom to provide solutions to personal and organizational challenges. Peter offers corporate workshops and seminars, public meditations, radio interviews, healing sessions, and community visits to bring awareness of the new paradigm, the awakening to conscious co-creation. Visit petertongue.com today to register for events and to purchase his transformative visualization meditation CDs. You can also download the meditation CDs as MP3s if you wish for listening on your computer or on the go. These are available now at petertongue.com. Being here with Ariel and Shia Kane is an ordinary person's guide to modern-day enlightenment. This show is an exciting exploration which opens the door to living in the moment. Don't miss being here. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern with Ariel and Shia Kane right here on the 7th Wave Network. What's it like? What's it like? It's lonely. It's really lonely. I miss my brother. I miss my brother. I'm surrounded by other people, but it's not the same. I've got other people around me, but it's not the same. It's pretty scary, but I don't let it rattle me. It's pretty scary around here, but I don't let it rattle me. You always have to watch your back. There's no one to watch my back. I spend my whole day worried who's out to get me. I'm always wondering who's out to get me. But I can take care of myself. But I can take care of myself. No matter what, I'll keep my head up. No matter what, I'll keep my head up. It's not like I have a choice. It's not like I have a choice. This'll all be over in five years, three months, and 17 days. This'll all be over in five years, three months, and 17 days. Go to jail for a gun crime and your family serves a sentence with you. Something to think about before committing a gun crime. Gun crimes hit home. This message brought to you by Project Safe Neighborhoods and the Ad Council. The new home for visionary positive change. Seventh Wave Network.
listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Hello and welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host Peter Tung. I have with me today Dr. Carmen Bolter, the producer of a wonderful uh, five-part TV series and DVD series, The Pyramid Code. And just before the break, Carmen, you gave a wonderful description of the way in which the pyramids may have been used as some form of energy device, uh, electrical capacitor even, using zigzag flowing water, fluctuating water, different types of, of stone, granite, and limestone, all create, and the shape of the pyramid itself, obviously, all creating this potentiality for creating energy, but also connecting that through to how that opportunity could also enable people to connect through higher consciousness as well. That's right. Very, very interesting stuff. So now I want to move on and talk about the band of peace and looking at rather than one or two pyramids, the field of pyramids and, and the significance of that connection to the star constellations. Well, when you look at a lot of frescoes in Egypt and particularly the ceiling of the first hypostyle hall of this temple of Dendera at, at, in Dendera, um, you'll see that you've got a solar boat, Orion, or, or, Osiris, who's represented by Orion, is standing in the center of the boat He's pointing his sword, and then you look above, and there's a cluster of six or seven stars. And then Isis is behind him with her arm around his waist. And I found that curious. I mean, a lot of people look at that and see, you know, the patriarch is there and the little woman is behind him. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not it at all, because Isis is always represented Sirius. And as I mentioned, Osiris represents Orion, and those little star clusters look like the Pleiades. So... I went into Starry Night Pro and I typed in the names of those planets and the Milky Way. And what I saw was that Sirius is always behind Orion. And if you look in the direction from the belt of the sword, you'd see the Pleiades. And then the Milky Way is to the left of this, which is exactly how it is in the sky-ground correlation in Giza, if the Nile was where it had been and now it's migrated eight miles to the east, and that would take a good long time, geologically speaking. And so what I did was I rotated. You can move things in Starry Night Pro 50,000 years back and 50,000 years forward. And what I noticed is that configuration is never separated. And you can take other star systems, and within a few years it just blows apart and it isn't, it isn't connected anymore. And so what the ancients understood is this configuration of stars that always stays together. And that is astounding because it's only in recent history that we've had access to such powerful programs as Starry Night Pro, and it's clear as a bell that that's the configuration. And so Sirius would represent Abu Roush, and the belt of Orion is Giza, and the Pleiades is Abu Sir, and then Andromeda is in front of it, which would be Saqqara and Dashur. So it's a sky-ground correlation. Now, if you were going to go and walk around the pyramids without knowing this, you would think, gee, they just scattered their pyramids any which way. But even like the basic volume of the stars seems to be represented in the configuration. So it's really quite profound. 
And why was it important to build the pyramids as a reflection of those stars on the planet? What was the, what was the benefit? What was the connection that the human race were making at that point? Well, that is still up for debate, and you say human race. Um, I'm, I'm starting to <laughs> was wonder that a mistake? <laughs> if it was them, or ha- recently now there has been a major, major find in South Africa where they also have three pyramids that are aligned to Orion, and they have what's called Adam's Calendar that was discovered by Johann Heine and uh, Michael Tilliger, and it aligns to all of the same things as Stonehenge and Giza, and he's calling it, there's, there's been three million structures approximately found through ground-penetrating radar and aerial photography in an area that's larger than Los Angeles, New York, and Johannesburg put together, and he's calling it the lost city of Enki and relating it to what Zachariah Sitchin's been talking about for 20 years without any evidence um, of the Anunnaki. So all of a sudden, in the last couple of weeks, I'm revising my idea of who it was and why, because apparently these structures are also repeated in the mind-blowing possibility of Mars. So it's interesting how new facts come along and turn around what we think. Uh, Now, whether whoever built them and why, it's a reflection of what really truly goes on in the heavens, and it's a marker for when planetary cycles come back. So we see that the Mayan calendar is marked there, the procession of the equinoxes, the heliacal rising of Sirius, the alignment to the constellation of Leo. There's all kinds of markers there that show our place in the universe in terms of the lowest zenith point of the belt of Orion and the highest zenith point kind of bobbing up and down relative to the procession of the equinoxes. So... Why is it important for us to understand that? I'm not sure. I mean, it really is one of the biggest mysteries we have. And it's fascinating that new pieces are still coming to us about it. So the one thing that is, is evident and obviously clear, though, is that these structures were built in a very specific and precise position to mirror those, those planets and constellations and um, almost predict uh, future events when they will come into align, alignment again. Yes, but in cycles of 26,000 years. Like Five, we're, yeah. We yeah. can't even think in those terms. I mean, from what we're taught in school, history is 6,000 years old, and there wasn't much that happened before that. And when we think about, you know, the, the Bible and the Old Testament, it all sounds like mythological gobbledygook. And I don't really think we've deciphered what our true place is in this whole cosmic field. And somehow, I mean, that's why we haven't understood the Egyptians, because we weren't willing to look at it in that perspective. So it really has turned the whole thing of what we've been taught in school on its side, for sure. Now, there are also lots of uh, artifacts that you yourself have observed, both actual physical artifacts and hieroglyphics in the different temples and and, uh, sites. And and one of those is uh, Abu Ghraib, where on the Pyramid Code they show clearly uh, in, a magnificent uh, crystal altar, uh, but also these stone basins. And, and clearly, well, it certainly appears, as you said right at the beginning, as if, as if these things have been machine-tooled, uh, some sort of laser cut, both in straight lines and in circles. Um, and these structures are just, are just lying there um, in, in, the, in Abu Ghraib. So, so what is your sense about all of that? Well, 
what's incredibly fascinating about it is that even if you're just dating it the way traditional Egyptologists do, I mean, these are solid structures that are pretty precise still, and they've got to be thousands of years old and probably tens of thousands of years old. The other thing that I find fascinating is the powers that be named the torture jail Abu Ghraib. Why? This site sits by itself with one lone watchman, no gate, no road, no nothing. If you were to just head south on the Giza Plateau on a horse or a camel, you'd stumble upon it if you knew what direction to go in. And um, it's solid pieces of polished quartz crystal. The inner circle, which uh, the indigenous wisdom keeper Hakim on the series says is the lid of a shaft that goes down 180 feet, is six feet across a circle, and then there are pointed slabs of crystal that are about three feet high that point to the four cardinal directions. And what's behind that is the base, not a, a pyramid, it's the base to the largest obelisk that was ever in Egypt that had a gold capstone, and then it disappeared. It's speculated that maybe it's in um, Italy. How do, how do you lose an obelisk? I'm not sure. And then these basins were found by Sir Walter Emery in the early 1900s, and they're all lined up. There's nine of them, but Hakim is pretty clear that there's more. Um, and they were going to bring them to the museum. They didn't know what to do with them, but there are these round holes, and they have the audacity. To, they're, they're probably about, I don't know, 16, 17 inches across. And they say that they were for, for bulls, to put the bull in and to do sacrifices, well, the, first of all, the quartz would be stained with blood, but you can't fit a whole bull <laughs> in a basin that's 17 inches across. It's like trying to put a bull in your kitchen sink. <laughs> exactly. But there are also these round holes that are probably three inches across, and they're absolutely perfectly cut. And then the top of it are these little circles that go around that are little bumps that look like gears, cogs in a wheel. Now, the shape of them actually resembles a satellite dish because they're shallow. And the hole could have been to put something in to then position the satellite. Now, I've always had the conviction that the energy around each of the pyramid sites would have been populated with high-level initiates who would use sound vibration through their voices, but that each of the pyramid sites that you can see north and south, it's a very curious thing. Any of the pyramid sites that you're at the six of them in the Band of Peace, if you look north, you can see the ones ahead. If you look south, you can see the other ones, and it's spectacular. And from Abu Rausch, you can see all of them. And we don't realize that because most of the documentaries you see show the three pyramids of Giza sitting by themselves, and you don't realize that the, the city of Giza is right up against them as well in modern times. Um, and so these could have been augmenting, transmitting devices. There's also something called the schist disk, that is no doubt connected to anti-gravity and to creating the droning sound of the vibration of the Earth. And so they could have been satellite dishes that went that, that were actually transmitting. Now, um, in Lee Michael, uh, what's his name, Lee Scallion, that built Crystal uh, Coral Castle in Florida, there's a documentary that was recently sent to me on YouTube that is dividing up a circle into 15-degree units, and those lumpy bumpies are exactly in those spaces. And he was suggesting that they put magnets inside them. So, Carmen, we're just coming up to our second break. It's just a fascinating discussion. You know so much. It's wonderful. And uh, we'll be back with Carmen Bolter after this next break. This is Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. 
you to the threshold of a dream and beyond. Seventh Wave Network. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure, what's up? Um, there's this girl I kind of like. Well, if there's one thing I know, it's women. Really? Well, they didn't call me velvet for nothing. I don't get it. Smooth. I was smooth. Oh. Anyway, it's easy. You just got to impress her. Show her how strong you are. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? I don't know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt, if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, Ugh! Try it. Ugh! Ugh! <laughs> See, there you go. And you should dress up. Start wearing a shirt and tie. I'll look like a dork. No, you'll look successful. Okay. And finally, you can start using my cologne. <clears throat> the ladies love it, so don't be shy. Splash it on. Thanks, Dad. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To find out how you can adopt, please visit our website at adoptuskids.org or call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. How do we walk our true spiritual path at a time when the Western world is fixated on material gain? More people are now recognizing the emptiness, which comes with this limited approach to life. There is another way. Four years ago, Peter Tong left his position as a high school principal with 30 years experience in the education system and turned to his true calling of a metaphysical life. He now uses his experience and wisdom to provide solutions to personal and organizational challenges. Peter offers corporate workshops and seminars, public meditations, radio interviews, healing sessions, and community visits to bring awareness of the new paradigm. The Awakening to conscious co-creation. Visit petertongue.com today to register for events and to purchase his transformative visualization meditation CDs. You can also download the meditation CDs as MP3s if you wish for listening on your computer or on the go. These are available now at petertongue.com. Listening on a higher dimension. Seventh Wave Network. Listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Hello and welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host Peter Tong. And I have with me today Dr. Carmen Bolter, who is giving us a, a wonderful insight into the pyramids and their use and the bigger picture involving them. So, Carmen, perhaps you could continue uh, and, and talk a little bit about the ritual practices and the initiations that the, the priests and priestesses were involved in uh, in Egypt. So, there are temples along the Nile that are metaphors for the chakra system. And... They run north-south, just as if you stood the human body um, over the top of that. And so the root chakra was dealt with first, and uh, initiates were trained to deal with the lower centers, and uh, the Temple of Isis was connected to sex magic. And there's uh, mythology and stories about Mary Magdalene having been a priestess there, 
And so there was something very important about learning to channel and harness sexual energy, and it wasn't considered taboo. And then you'd move on up the chakras, and when you get to Kamumbo, it was the um, solar plexus, and that was the, or, sorry, 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 the digestion. And, um, and that was connected to digesting fears. And so the initiates would, would deal with one set of issues and one chakra at a time and do purification rituals and then test. And so at Kamumbo, they would have to swim down underneath these passageways where there were crocodiles. And, of course, they'd be underwater and they couldn't breathe and they'd be swimming with crocodiles. Um, and, of course, that was very, very frightening. And I've been inside those passageways and there's, they're very, very narrow. It's very easy to panic and get claustrophobic in there. Um, and I learned just recently that uh, a crocodile cannot open its mouth underwater, so there wasn't as much danger as you would think. But the initiates didn't know this. And then they moved up through the chakras until they arrived at Giza, which was the crown chakra. Um, And the whole thing was that when the initiations were being done and the rituals were being performed in the temples, there were scribes that were writing things down on papyrus scrolls so that there would be records of how the initiates were trained. And the whole thing was to be able to train them in the way where they could handle huge amounts of energy if they were to arrive at the Band of Peace. They would be there for the rest of their lives they would arrive on a barge and step into the reception area in the Valley Temple with the huge megalithic stones. And they would arrive blindfolded and naked, bare feet, and they'd be given a robe, and they would stay forever. And it was only certain well-trained initiates that were able to come there, and they would arrive with the eighth level of initiation uh, having been achieved. But they couldn't get to the ninth level without doing individual initiations through the high, high priestess who would travel from the Sphinx Temple underneath the Grand Causeway to the initiation chamber under the Second Pyramid, and then the priestesses would meet them, priests and priestesses would meet them, meet the high, high priestess who would supercharge them inside the pyramid into the ninth level. And what that was is the ability that would give them the ability for the transmutation of the atom. And this is what they were able to do and they would get abilities from that. So they became telepathic. They were able to use bilocation, teleportation, anti-gravity, alchemy, and manifestation. And all of this was based on the same principle as we talked about in the energy system where the water molecule would break apart, but our bodies are 75, 70%, whatever you'd say, water. And they would blow the, molecule, the water molecule apart inside us. It would give us the abilities to actually have... Um, the ability to do what I've just said, which are represented as the cities, S-I-D-H-I, in the Vedic traditions. So if they weren't able to handle the energy fields, they could die. They could fry, if you will. And so it was really, really important that they were trained correctly. And, of course, everyone, it's just like some people start um, high school and don't finish, and other people make their all the way to a Ph.D., and then there's people who are doing postdocs. So the band of peace definitely would have been for the post-doc initiates, if you will. <laughs> right. And so at the, at the end of this, then, they would have been essentially fully realized human beings uh, um, able to travel to the other realms to experience other worlds. Exactly. And that's what um, we talk about, the empowered human that had full-spectrum si- si- excuse me, senses. And Hakim talks about that as 360 senses, which means that the chakras would, would blend and they could see pictures and, or sorry, hear pictures and see music and, 
and all of this cross-sensory knowing. And, and knowing is a very deep power, and that's one of the things that we're not connected to as well here. We're, we're fact-driven, and, and not, we're, we're not focused on deep knowledge. Now, you, you mentioned in that process several key words, including transmuting the atom, alchemy. You mentioned anti-gravity earlier and uh, teleportation chambers. So this would have been, this practice would have been reserved for those high initiates. Is there actual evidence in the pyramids for uh, that level of powerful energy taking place there? <laughs> Good question. The pyramid texts basically are describing... Um, a lot of this information that was for the select group of high-level initiates and the connection to the stars and the tracking of Sirius and this sort of thing. But everywhere you see evidence of dimensional doorways and access to higher realms of consciousness and even um, the half-animal, half-human figures that you see all over Egypt are referred to as therianthropes, half-animal, half-human. And uh, when you go into altered states of consciousness, as Graham Hancock in his book Supernatural talks about, um, the, the, you meet beings that are half animal, half human. And this is an access point into other dimensions of consciousness. And they would access this through ingesting the blue lotus. Blue lotus soaked in wine, um, and they would actually go to altered states of consciousness through this. And um, it was a very gentle um, drug experience, I suppose, for lack of better words, but it would actually have an effect on consciousness. But this was not taboo in ancient Egypt. This was something that they practiced because their whole thing was about how we got here, creation, and how we left, which is cosmo cosmology. And so there was a deep understanding and, and a, a need to achieve the ability to consciously leave and drop the physical body. And there was an understanding of the ka, which is the body double, which is what would bilocate. The, the, other, the body double would be in the other place while the body would be where in the original spot. And the ba, which is the soul that was able to live on, never mind the physical body, which is the essence of reincarnation. But that's been, you know, that was outlawed, outlawed in the Council of Nicene in, in 330 AD, so that we're not supposed to think about that anymore. And so there's certain traditions that have taken us completely away from being able to understand this, but that's what the ancients were really doing. And, and the symbolism then, that we, I, I can remember in, in, the, in the DVD seeing uh, someone's head or face and these, it's like a series of blue lotus flowers moving towards their face. And so the symbolism that's, that's present um, is actually telling us the story, if only we can see it. Well, one of the things is you'll see the capitals on the tops of the pillars in any of the temples are either papyrus or lotus. And at the entrance to the Holy of Holies at Karnak, there's one papyrus pillar and one lotus pillar. And this was the balance between the sacred masculine and the sacred feminine. But the feminine is represented in the lotus. And so the, the, the other thing is that feminine consciousness is the unseen, the symbolic, timelessness, the, the mysteries. And masculine consciousness is what's concrete and here and linear. And so dogma instead of spirituality. But the blend between them, the blending of the perfection between masculine and feminine in the, mas in the male and in the female was what was the key to being able to access the higher realms for the ancient Egyptians. 
but we've been living in a patriarchal culture that's basically denigrated the feminine and the symbolic and upheld everything that's masculine, and I think that's at the root of what's, what we're, why we're in trouble now. And that brings it beautifully a segue into uh, talking about the 18th dynasty, because I, I believe that you, your belief is that that was the last time we actually had this balance between the sacred feminine and sacred masculine. Well, what most people don't understand is that the uh, dynastic period started in 3113 BC, which is exactly mimicking the Mayan calendar. And so anything that you see that's pharaonic is going to be a gradual um, penetration of the patriarchal ways of being and thinking. So prior to that, there was a, a greater spirituality in the far distance and a whole different system. But there were periods of time where the spirituality and the memory of these times pops up. And I think that could be from past lives of the actual characters that were in the 18th dynasty. So it starts with Queen Hatshepsut, who claims that she was semi-divine because a being overtook her father who impregnated her mother, which made her a, like a starseed. And so she would, if you trace the family tree in a correct way, if you, if you do 18th dynasty family tree and find 10 websites, there'll be 10 trees because nobody really knows how that went down. Um, but I did some work with um, some very powerful, connected people who actually traced the lineage of Queen Hatshepsut to be one of the great-great-grandmothers of Amenhotep III, who's the father of Akhenaten, who Akhenaten and Nefertiti are the ones that, again, brought forward some of this true spirituality in a time when the Amun priesthood was incredibly corrupt. They made people pay for their salvation, the populace had to pay half their taxes in order to um, secure a safe passage to the other side. And it was all very disempowering, give your power to the priests instead of um, being empowered. And so Akhenaten and Nefertiti said, forget it, we're not doing this, we're closing the temples, we're moving to Amarna, which is a space in the middle between the two capitals. And they started over again. And they were hated by the Amun priesthood who weren't going to make money off paying for people paying for their own salvation. And so right to this day, pretty much anything you read about Akhenaten says he's crazy, he was deformed, everything was wrong with him, he was a heretic. But in, interestingly, um, the rest of the world is modeled now on, how, you know, if you don't get caught, it's not wrong, on the Amun priesthood instead of living in truth. And Akhenaten and Nefertiti probably had it right. Queen Hatshepsut would have been known as the best pharaoh um, if she hadn't been female. So, Carmen, we're coming up to our last break, and uh, we'll continue. And I'd love to talk to you a little bit about your views of the upcoming 2012 on our return. This is Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. to the threshold of a dream and beyond. Seventh Wave Network. How do we walk our true spiritual path at a time when the Western world is fixated on material gain? More people are now recognizing the emptiness which comes with this limited approach to life. There is another way. 
years ago, Peter Tan left his position as a high school principal with 30 years experience in the education system and turned to his true calling of a metaphysical life. He now uses his experience and wisdom to provide solutions to personal and organizational challenges. Peter offers corporate workshops and seminars, public meditations, radio interviews, healing sessions, and community visits to bring awareness of the new paradigm, the awakening to conscious co-creation. Visit PeterTongue.com today to register for events and to purchase his transformative visualization meditation CDs. You can also download the meditation CDs as MP3s if you wish for listening on your computer or on the go. These are available now at PeterTongue.com. When you have a stroke, you may not even notice it right away. But then, time passes and the symptoms get worse. One minute you feel fine and the next, your speech could be slurred or not make sense. One side of your body might become numb. You might see double. You drop the TV remote because you can't hold up your arm. That's because after a stroke, every minute you don't get help is another minute that your brain is being starved of oxygen. The warning signs of a stroke include sudden numbness or weakness of the face, arm, or leg, sudden trouble seeing, speaking, or understanding. If you experience any of these warning signs, call 911 immediately because time lost is brain lost. Visit strokeassociation.org or call 1-888-4-STROKE today. A public service announcement from the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Be extraordinary. Seventh Wave Network. Listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Hello and welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host Peter Tung. And just before the break with Carmen Bolter, Carmen was explaining to us 5,000 years ago in 3113, uh, the time when uh, Arkanita, Nefertiti, and Tutankhamun were living in, in a Armana in what was a, a balanced masculine-feminine time. So Carmen, just, uh, if you wouldn't mind, bring that forward from then to now and, and what you believe has been taking place over the last 5,000 years and what that's going to lead to into the 2012, which everybody's got great interest in. Well, let's just clarify. 3113 was the first dynasty, and the 18th dynasty was 1350 to 1450 or so okay. um, B.C., and that's when Nefertiti and Akhenaten and Hatshepsut were. Um, and so um, 2012, I've been really curious about what is the alignment here? What do we got going, and what does it really look like in terms of uh, the planetary alignments? And so what I've discovered again through Starry Night Pro, some people say it's at 11.11 on December 21st, 2012. Well, it just doesn't line up. And it's really interesting because that may be New York time or something, but it lines up at sunset, exactly at sunset. Giza, which is the Great Pyramid, 
the 21st of December 2012. So even Joseph Coleman was saying, no, 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 it's October uh, 2011. No, it doesn't line up unless it's at sunset. But in astrology, we talk about a six-degree variation for something to be in conjunction. And so if you hold an, a pen to the edge of a glass, we've actually been moving into the photon band and moving into this field that's close to the galactic center as we spiral around the sun and the sun spirals through the galaxy. And so on December 21st, 20, uh, 2008, we hit the edge. The sun hit the edge of the exact center. Um, and then 2009, imagine the pen moving toward the center of the glass, eight touching the edge, nine, 10, 11, 12, straight down the middle. And so we are aligning in Sagittarius with the galactic center, which some people say is a black hole, and some people say that the black hole is the entrance point to another universe. And so lots of people are saying Armageddon, and it's going to stress the planet to go through all of that. But it really is an entry point into a whole new way of being and thinking, uh, an opportunity for the corrupt system to collapse, and a true human system uh, that's based on creativity and, and, and human development to take precedence. Now, no one knows how that's going to come how that's going to come down, and there's perhaps plenty of reasons for fear the way the patriarchal system is in its last kicks. But I say that over time we'll come to see this 5,000-year cycle as the patriarchal hiccup because everything that came before it was matriarchal. And matriarchy doesn't mean women controlling men. It means balance. And that we have a true opportunity to come back into balance and into a true spirituality and move our way toward another golden age. So you're very hopeful about this, uh, this shift uh... On that date. Well, I am, and I, I still, I mean, I'm not going to watch the movies, you know, that are all negative. Nor am um, I. And I do hear, though, that there are some solar flares and pole shift possibilities and that sort of thing. But I can only hope that we're going to land on our feet, and the shakedown is going to shake off the negative system. So just a clarification for me, then. So you see that date, um, at the sunset of Giza, as the literally the turning point from the darkness back towards the light from the patriarchal to the balanced society. I do. And I use the metaphor that when we're coming into Christmas, uh, to solstice, December solstice, it's getting darker and darker and darker, and it's almost suffocating. And then we turn the point, and even though we've got one more minute of light the day after solstice, winter solstice, we feel better. And every day we feel a little better because we're climbing toward the light. And that's a big distinction between the day before solstice where we're feeling just absolutely crushed by the lack of light. And within a few weeks in the spring, it's beautiful and bright and clear and, the, and there's new life coming to the planet. That's right, and I think it's a powerful metaphor. Yeah, absolutely. So, Karma, just uh, give us some uh, information about your upcoming events. I know you've got, you've got a tour that you're leading yourself, and then we'll talk about the Africa connection again. But just, just give us uh, some update information. I'm taking a group uh, to Egypt. I've been doing this for 14 years, um, and we're going to be inside the Great Pyramid, private meditation on 10-10-10, and the trip is from October 7th to 21st, and pretty much everything in the Pyramid Code I'm going to take you to. If it's humanly possible, um, you'll see most of what's in the series. Wow, that's, that's an incredible opportunity. And how can people get find out more information? What's your website for that? 
it's pyramidcode.com, and the contact information has my email, and that's the best way to connect it. The information about the trip is not on the website. People can just ask me for the itinerary. Okay. So it's www.pyramidcode.com. Fantastic. And now just uh, tell us a little bit uh, more about your involvement. You mentioned the, the uh, Adams calendar and Michael Tellinger earlier in the show, but you're now actually going to be heavily involved in that uh, excursion and research. Well, Michael has been doing a lot of work uh, over the years, and he saw the Pyramid Code, and he approached me last week, actually, about directing and producing a documentary series that went with the new find that he's calling the Lost City of Enki that I mentioned. And I'll be going to Johannesburg on May 16th, uh, and we're going to be shooting a trailer. They've got the helicopter all booked to uh, go over this enormous site and then to walk on the ground. And he claims that there are Ankhs and Horus figures and, of course, the pyramids that align to Orion, and he wants to show me firsthand and we've already, we're already approaching TV networks about it. So it's just at the very beginning of it, but uh, it's pretty exciting. And what is your initial sense of what the significance of this site is? Well, Zachariah Sitchin's been talking about the Anunnaki, and there's been various people studying the translations of Sumerian texts that talk about things that we've only recently discovered, but been, they haven't had a shred of proof. Perhaps they've had, in the Sumerian texts, they've seen planetary bodies and that sort of thing, texts. And, and frescoes, but in terms of the physical reality, um, there's the Sheba mine, he says it's King Solomon's mine, um, the stories that go with all of that, and the, and, and the, the Queen of Sheba is mentioned in the, Torah, the Torah and the Bible and the Quran, and uh, it could very well be very, very old, and he's found diorite statues that date back to 200,000 years. Well, all along, and there's huge resonance chambers, and they're all connected in a hexagonal form, and the Egyptian connection, well, wait a minute, maybe this is the missing piece, the clue that we didn't have before. And so I haven't seen it with my own eyes, but I certainly believe him. And well, there is it, sounds no foot- like, uh, it sounds like you're in for a fascinating trip. Yeah, and there's no footage anywhere. There's footage on Adam's calendar. There's lots of YouTube videos on Michael talking about the connection to the Anunnaki, but it seems like this is a recent development. They found Adam's calendar two years ago, but they're only stumbling upon what this could be, and uh, I can't wait to see it. Well, I can't wait to interview you after you get back, (laughs) and uh, we're going to have to call it uh, to a close right now. Thank you so much, Carmen. It's been a wonderful show. Next week, I'm talking with little grandmother Selena Water Eagle about the 13 clan mothers and the sacred feminine. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you're enjoying the show. This is Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. found this week's show to be enlightening and inspiring. Please join host Peter Tung for another edition of Awakening to Conscious Creation next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network.